Morena and welcome to the Dawn Chorus. It is Thursday, September the 29th. I'm Bernard Hickey for the Kaka. This is my daily podcast that goes out with a daily email uh, via my substack called the Kaka. Uh, firstly, my apologies for not putting one out yesterday. I was stuck at a conference and uh, ran out of steam. But back um, with a vengeance this morning to talk about the big news on global markets and asset values and central banks that I think we should keep an eye on here. You might have heard that last night the Bank of England intervened in financial markets in an extraordinary way. It promised to buy at least £5 billion worth of government bonds in the bond market for the next 13 days running. In effect, the Bank of England said it would do whatever it takes to calm down the volatility in British bond markets. Now, what is this all about? Well, you might recall a week or so ago, the new British Chancellor of the Exchequer, Kwasi Kwarteng, and his boss, the new British Conservative Prime Minister, Liz Truss, announced £45 billion worth of tax cuts. They're effectively removing the top tax rate of 45 cent pence in the pound and handing over tax cuts to those people at the top end of the wealth spectrum. What this means, for example, is that the top 2,500 taxpayers in Britain will each receive £18 million extra per taxpayer per year in tax cuts. More than half of the $45 billion, sorry, £45 billion will go to those people who are earning more than a million pounds a year. This is, in effect, a debt-funded series of massive tax cuts for the wealthiest. This is increasing government borrowing that all taxpayers at large, in theory, will have to repay and service over the years, and giving that cash to people who don't need it. Now, this is brazen and extraordinary. It's hard to believe that uh, any sensible politician or economic manager is actually doing this, but Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng are. They argue that delivering tax cuts to the rich will stimulate economic growth. And if it's done in tandem with what they call supply-side reforms, this is increasing the capacity of the economy to grow by removing regulation, that this will make economic growth stronger and faster. This is a theory put out there during the Reagan era and was used as an excuse to cut taxes for the rich and has regularly been done in Western democracies for the last 30 years or so. We've even tried a bit of it here. The trouble is, the International Monetary Fund, the OECD, the World Bank, anyone who seriously looks at macroeconomic policy has done the sums on all of these supply-side tax cut and hope policies of the last 30 years and worked out that it doesn't actually increase growth. If anything, it slows growth down. And that's because when you give a lot of money to people who are already very wealthy, they tend not to invest it in riskier assets or spend it on goods and services. What they do is park the money 
in a safe place so they don't lose it. Now that safe place can be an asset like a piece of land, a piece of art, or ironically, a government bond. And it's led in part to a savings glut around the world over the last 20 or 30 years where enormous amounts of cash has been uh, built up and stuck into bank accounts and government bonds. Now, this is all fine from a financial stability point of view until you think that a government which is uh, giving the tax cuts is doing it in a way that's not financially sustainable, i.e. that the government bonds, which all the rich people are now buying, may not be serviced or might default at some point. Typically, these tax cuts are fiscally done in a fiscally neutral way, i.e. you give tax cuts to rich people and on the other side of the equation you cut your spending on government services to make sure that your books are balanced. Both of which, of course, uh, widen inequality and worsen well-being for the overall population. Uh, that's been the tactic of the last 30 years uh, in many um, uh, neoliberal economies, and it's very clear it hasn't worked. Uh, we sort of learnt that in general in the global financial crisis, and it's been confirmed by a gazillion studies since. It's why reasonably sensible governments don't do it anymore. In fact, the previous Conservative government um, pursued a policy of increasing taxes on the wealthiest and trying to what they call level up by increasing spending on government services, particularly for the poorer. It was one of the good ideas that Boris Johnson had, although not executed. Liz Truss has completely flipped on this policy and is just going straight out Reagan-style supply-side tax cuts for the rich. Now, the, the British government hasn't signalled yet uh, uh, how it's going to pay for it, and so the assumption is it's going to be paid for with borrowing. So long story short, the financial markets simply don't believe what the British government is doing and don't believe that it's sustainable. And so what they've done is sold off government bonds, what they call gilts, in British financial markets. Now when you sell a bond, the price of it goes down. But when the price goes down, the interest rate goes up. Remember, fixed interest securities, bonds, prices down, yields or interest rates up, and the, the other way around. When yields go down, prices go up. Now... The gilt markets are typically not very exciting. Uh, they are all about uh, wealth protection. They're used by pension funds. And typically, you hardly ever hear about them, but they're actually a crucial component in the plumbing of the global financial system. Not just British gilts, but actually the US Treasuries market. And you'll often hear me talking about US Treasuries because it matters. So what actually happened last night and why and what's going to happen next? Uh, I'm, I've taken a bit of time to try to understand why there was such a violent sell-off in the last week or so in the British government bond markets to try to understand what's gone on, why the Bank of England has uh, completely flipped on a policy up until a few days ago, which was to actually try to push up interest rates, particularly short-term interest rates, 
and to do something called quantitative tightening. This is the, the, the uh, inverse of quantitative easing. Now you may have heard of quantitative easing. Effectively, this is uh, what we call money printing. This is where the a central bank will invent money in its spreadsheet and use that money to buy government bonds, effectively pushing down interest rates, pushing up prices of government bonds. And this was a tactic that started being used in, in earnest during the global financial crisis. Uh, a short aside, the Bank of Japan's been doing this for 20 years and is still doing it. Yeah, but the US Federal Reserve, the Bank of England, the European Central Bank um, did this at various points after the through the global financial crisis and actually through COVID. And our Reserve Bank joined them finally in 2020 during the COVID crisis and went on to print 55 billion New Zealand dollars, which helped push down interest rates, push up the housing market, and in combination with the removal of LVR restrictions, helped uh, um, uh, support the New Zealand economy through the wealth effect, i.e. people who owned homes and other assets, including shares, felt wealthier, went to the shops, spent some money, supported the economy. So we are at a point now where the a Bank of England has been trying to slow down the British economy for the last year or so because inflation is too high. And inflation in Britain looks set to go over 10% in the very near future and is likely to stay above there for quite some time. So the British, the Bank of England has been putting up its short-term interest rates and been uh, reversing its quantitative easing of previous years by selling bonds back into the market. That's all fine. But then along comes this debt-funded tax cut, which the markets have revolted over, and which, by the way, the International Monetary Fund came out in an unprecedented criticism publicly and said that the British government should change its mind and do something different. And uh, so the Bank of England, sensing uh, financial instability and a crisis of confidence in the financial system in Britain, decided to intervene and print, in a whatever-it-takes moment, print £5 billion per day for 13 days, at least. They'll probably have to do more. This, of course, flies straight in the face of their own plans to tighten the economy and to reduce inflation. So what you have here is a, an independent central bank, in theory, that is working at direct odds with its own government. And its own government is working at direct odds with the International Monetary Fund and the global financial system. This surprised me a bit. I couldn't quite work out why the Bank of England had to intervene in such a dramatic way. So I did some digging. And the reason I'm interested in this is because in a past life, I was a uh, bond markets banking insurance reporter for Reuters and the Financial Times Group in London. In the early 2000s, I used to cover insurers, banks, the bond markets, the Bank of England, macroeconomic policy in Britain and in Europe. So I'm interested and I have a particular set of skills in finding out some stuff about this. So I did some digging and that's why the podcast is a little bit later this morning into why there was such an explosive move. All right, just stepping back a bit, this is all about 
defined benefit pension schemes. For those people who don't know about these things, they are rare in New Zealand, and uh, are, but are less rare and quite popular in the United Kingdom. They were things set up uh, post-war mostly, but were around um, before the Second World War, whereby if you worked for a company or a government department for a long time, you would put aside some of your money into a pension scheme, and then when you retired, that scheme would pay you a set proportion of your salary every week until the day you died. The assumption was that you would die quite quickly and the pension fund wouldn't have to pay out too much money. And during the 50s, 60s and 70s, um, investment returns from bonds and stock markets were relatively high, particularly interest rates were high. And especially through the 70s and 80s when a lot of these schemes were up and running and people were keen to be in defined benefit schemes. And then came the early 1990s where we started to see interest rates fall and investment returns fall. Essentially, the global economy started slowing down uh, and productivity started falling. And so the returns from these funds started to dribble away. That was at the same time as people started living longer. So suddenly you had all these former public servants and people who were on high incomes collecting as of right, a leg of right, a very high pension. So if you retired and you were on a salary of $100,000 and your defined benefit pension said you were paid 60% of your final salary, every year the government or the company that you work for would have to pay you $60,000. Meanwhile, the fund that was built up did not have the funds to pay for this. So there were a whole bunch of these defined benefit pension schemes in Britain uh, that were effectively unfunded. And they were huge liabilities. And in some cases, the companies actually went broke because when you revalued these unfunded liabilities, you realised that the company was insolvent. And Governments too, uh, who have many employees on these schemes, decided to close them. So what typically happened in the early 1990s is these divine, defined benefit schemes were closed. So when you joined a company or the government, you couldn't actually join the scheme. You had to uh, sign up to a what they call a defined contribution uh, pension scheme, which is the same as we have here now for most people, which are KiwiSaver and other pension schemes. You put your money in, maybe the employer puts their money in, it builds up, it goes up, it goes down. Whatever you've got when you retire, that's how much money you have for the rest of your life. The risk, if you like, of poor returns or you living longer is borne by the saver, not by the company or the government um, running the fund. We do actually have one of these defined benefit schemes, which is quite large. This is the Government Superannuation Fund, uh, which incorporates a whole bunch of, um, of these divine benefits schemes, which, which were set up under legislation in 1956 and were eventually closed to new members in 1991, when it was realised there was a massive unfunded liability building up for the government. Now, those people who were in the scheme were in. Uh, they were uh, the, the lucky ones, and if they kept contributing and are still alive, um, and there's about uh, 43,000 people collecting these uh, defined benefit contributions in New Zealand, um, they're on a pretty good wicket. The fund itself has about $5.3 billion in it, 
but there is an unfunded liability there currently of $6.7 billion, and that's paid out of the broad taxpayers' pot. Uh, so uh, taxpayers in general, particularly the young ones who didn't get in on these defined benefit schemes, are effectively paying for old people not only to get the New Zealand superannuation, but these defined benefit schemes as well. It's a massive uh, intergenerational wealth transfer. You could argue it's, uh, luckily, luckily it was stopped mostly in the early 1990s, but there was a bunch of people who got in under the wire and they're doing very well out of it. The problem is here though, when you have a defined, defined benefit uh, scheme, uh, you have to revalue the unfunded liability every year. And the way to do that is to look at interest rates. You essentially look at your, what they call a discount rate, and you find, come up with a net present value of the liability, and that's what you have to report. And you try to match your assets with your liabilities. So when interest rates fall, the size of your liability gets bigger, i.e. you're not going to get much money from your bonds or your investments when interest rates and investment returns fall, therefore the size of your liability gets bigger. That makes sense. So one of the risks for funds is that if they don't hedge that risk of a falling uh, set of falling interest rates or on the other side a very quick rise in interest rates, then there's a risk uh, they get stung with an order from a regulator to uh, um, come up with an extra couple of billion pounds or dollars at the drop of a hat to ensure that uh, there wasn't an unfunded liability in the scheme. So, as interest rates fell slowly, that was fine. There were no problems uh, hedging your risks. And remember, when you hedge your risks, you effectively take a bet you essentially employ leverage to ensure that uh, if there's a big move, um, you don't get burnt and the other side of the equation gets burnt. That's fine. Uh, often banks and funds will bet against each other depending on their position. However, the problem comes when there's a big and really fast move, either one way or the, or the other, and that will wipe out someone on the other side of that bet. And when things move quickly, often the intermediary will uh, have what they call a collateral call. So let's say you had an option or you had a put. You're essentially uh, getting a phone call from the, uh, um, uh, from the bank saying, hey, um, you, you've just breached your uh, collateral. Um, things are moving too quickly. Can you make sure you put some extra money into the account? So you need to come up with cash quickly. Now, what... Ironically, the way these leverage situations work is not too surprising. When you have a big fast move, people have to sell assets to meet their cash calls um, to uh, ensure that they have enough collateral in their accounts. And when you're a pension fund, the collateral you have is bonds. So when there's a big move in bond prices and yields up or down, often what happens is the pension funds have to sell bonds to meet collateral. So do you get the point? It's a doom loop. It's a, 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 a essentially a feedback loop which make things move faster and in bigger ways. They become more volatile. This all sounds very familiar, doesn't it? From 2008, 2009, those people who were around then. Or maybe those people who have watched or read The Big Short. And if you haven't yet, I would recommend it. It's an entertaining movie. It's a story about the global financial crisis and what went wrong. 
and how the people who did the wrong things didn't pay. And essentially, it's a story about derivatives and the dangers in derivatives and the dangers of groupthink. It tells a story about how a bunch of banks in the United States created synthetic derivatives based on the idea that the US housing market would never go down and people would never pay, never um, default on their mortgages. And it's the story about of some rebels who realised that indeed people were defaulting on their mortgages and the market was in trouble, largely because the US Federal Reserve just put up interest rates. And that uh, led to um, a bunch of the people on the wrong side of these bets going bust. Firstly, it was Lehman Brothers. And there's a really interesting moment in 2008 when Lehman Brothers uh, was allowed to go bust by the US Federal Reserve on the grounds that hey, they took the risk, uh, shareholders should have controlled those bankers and they'll lose their money, they're wiped out. That's fine, but when you have an interconnected series of financial institutions and a collection of collateral calls that essentially cascade into each other, you end up with a financial system that falls over. And that's what threatened to happen in 2008. So within days of Lehman Brothers, another huge institution, AIG, was in deep trouble, and then the Fed intervened. So essentially, the central bank intervened by printing money, uh, creating liquidity, buying bonds, uh, engineering rescues of banks so that uh, uh, shareholders and debt holders were often allowed to keep their gains and were not wiped out. So essentially, the lesson from that story was you could always rely on a central bank to bail you out. And it was a sign of a, a type of capture where those in the banking system, those who are in pension funds, those connected to government and to these uh, central banks were able to use those tools, extraordinary tools, the ability to print money, the ability to intervene in financial markets to protect the wealth of the wealthy. Now, they argued that this was to stop the collapse of the financial system, which would hurt the global economy and mean a lot of people lost their jobs and you'd have enormous economic pain, which is true. But uh, you do that once, and then you change the systems so that those people who over-leveraged their balance sheets um, and were effectively betting on uh, someone else to bail them out, that they can't do that again. And that also they're punished for taking those risks and effectively uh, socialising the losses and privatising the profits. So there should have been people jailed, uh, a whole bunch of people should have lost their shirts, bonuses should have been repaid. But as we know from watching The Big Short and having covered it as a financial journalist for the last decade or so, that never really happened. In fact, the people who engineered these bailouts and engineered these transfers of wealth from the public at large to uh, uh, privately owned funds, banks, asset owners, uh, were in fact celebrated and congratulated for intervening and doing it effectively in the midst of a crisis, 2008-2009, when politicians were seen as bumbling and useless. So we had the masters of the universe, Ben Bernanke and the likes, who were seen as rescuing the global economy. Fast forward to 2020, and they did it again with COVID. So they printed another $5 trillion. 
and um, that meant that asset owners got a lot wealthier. And this time we did it here in New Zealand too, through the quantitative easing, money printing to buy bonds, pushing down interest rates, pushing up house prices and other asset prices. So this is why I'm interested in what the Bank of England has just had to do. And uh, we'll see whether or not it works. My reading of it is that the Bank of England has done this to buy time for the British government to effectively abandon these plans for unfunded tax cuts for the richest. We'll see whether they do. For now, financial markets have settled down and said, OK, right, we know that we've just been bailed out again. Phew. In fact, some people have started asking questions in the United States. Is there also trouble in the US Treasury's market for, for the same reasons, particularly now that interest rates have risen so quickly, forced by the US Federal Reserve trying to control inflation? And the Treasury Secretary, Janet Yellen, said last night that no, um, things are stable and functional in the US Treasury's market, and uh, we are um, uh, trying to remove the moral hazard in the market, and we are doing whatever it takes to get inflation down. Well, last night, the Bank of England said it would do whatever it takes to rescue the financial system, in effect, sacrificing its inflation target for the sake of keeping the banking system alive. We'll see whether the US Federal Reserve is forced into the same position by some sort of um, ructions on the global financial markets and obviously US financial markets. For now, there aren't those ructions have only been limited pretty much to the UK financial markets. But don't forget, there is an enormous amount of vulnerability, particularly in the European financial markets. And uh, banks generally are in much healthier positions than they were in 2008-2009. So it's not likely to come out of the banking system. But now we have this enormous shadow banking system of private equity, hedge funds, uh, various pension funds. And as we've seen with these instruments that are being used in Britain, these um, uh, instruments known as liability-driven investing strategies, this is the the idea where you take out a hedge, uh, use a derivative to protect your defined benefit scheme from uh, having to report a big unfunded liability. Uh, that uh, sounds very similar. It doesn't have an LDI. Sounds very similar to a CDO, a collateralized debt obligation, or even worse, a C CDS, which is a credit default swap on a collateralized debt obligation. Uh, my, the most fun ones I saw were synthetic CDOs. So um, what we have here is some fancy pants banks who've created a derivative which now looks like it could have blown up um, the uh, defined benefit pension system in the UK. By the way, it's worth £1.5 trillion. That's about two-thirds of UK GDP. And the notional liability has been reported uh, for these LDIs at around about 380 to 500 billion pounds. So we're talking about 20% of GDP if they were allowed to blow up. The Bank of England intervened last night to ensure they didn't blow up and we'll see what happens next. I thought it would be useful to try to understand and explain this for our subscribers. And if you want this one opened up for the public, I'd be very happy to have that happen. 
and um, please just jump on to the uh, this is for paying subscribers to jump on to the end of the email newsletter and hit the button that says uh, open it up I hope there was an exciting romp through the global financial markets uh, and finally all that work I did in the early 2000s as a bond markets M&A banking insurance and pension funds reporter might have been useful Kaki Tano.